Hello, and welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. My name is Jason Hammond. I'm here with Todd Norwood. Hey, Jason. Good to be talking to you again. How, how are you hanging in there with the, the quarantine? Uh, it's going okay. Um, I've, I've learned to not go out, and other than riding my bike, uh, just staying home, doing the best I can. I think that's how most of us are. I, I think that's about that's about all we can do at this point. And hopefully get out and uh, enjoy our bikes a little bit. Yep. So, Todd, today we're talking about the mitochondria. And actually, to give some backstory, I uh, I basically requested this uh, from you. And um, I, I want to learn more about how mitochondria work and what they do and why they're important. I know they get talked about a fair bit uh, it just in general for sports. And uh, let's see how they, they're helpful for the cyclist. Sure. And I, I mean, I think mitochondria are fascinating, um, cause they are such a integral part of how we power our bikes on certainly at least on the microscopic level, uh, what's, what's driving us forward. Um, that being said, I am going to avoid going into all of the microscopic detail. Like this is by no means going to be a, a microbiology lecture. Um, we kind of try to, you know, certainly give you some valuable information, hopefully improve your understanding of what mitochondria are and what they do um, and how they function and what happens when we train, but not, not going into crazy detail and the stuff that I at some point memorized for um, my biology classes. Sure. I'm sure you were a, a good A student memorizing all that stuff. I, you know, you gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do. Right. Um, and unfortunately, some of it left my mind and I would quickly remember when I picked up some of my old textbooks to prep for this episode, all, all the things that I used to remember. Yeah, sure. Um, sure. That's all of us, I think. So anyhow, I think we've pro- probably all heard this at some point in our life. I mean, you, you know, even in our high school biology class that the mitochondria gets the nickname, the powerhouse of the cell. Um, and, and so the mitochondria is an, is an organ within the cell. And it's the place where all the cellular metabolism happens. So, you know, we eat carbohydrates, we eat fat, we, you know, have a VO2 max and we're breathing in oxygen. And where, you know, where is like our mitochondria is our internal combustion engine, if you will, right? Like in your car, you put gas in the tank and you start driving, there's air intake and, you know, magic happens to make the cylinders go. Um, That's in the engine. For us, where that those same chemical reactions happen, they're actually in the mitochondria, and that's what's producing the energy to allow our muscles to contract. So I think that's, that's how you get the name powerhouse of the cell, because that's like literally the the human equivalent of the internal combustion engine. It's just on a super microscopic level. Sure, and then it's the it's the summation of these microscopic uh, engines that gets the total you know net force to go up. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. One, one mitochondrion by itself isn't going to produce a whole lot of energy for you. You need, you know, many, many of them, um, at, you know, at, at each cell to be able to, um, get the muscles going. So, um, when we t- talk about VO2 max or, you know, just generally like oxygen, almost all the oxygen that we're using when we're exercising is actually consumed in the mitochondria. Right. So these, these are the little guys that are gals or whatever organs that are doing the work, uh, to, to make us go there. Those are, that's where the oxygen is being consumed. Hmm. Um, and so 
because it is aerobic and it's using oxygen. Right? That's that's what aerobic means with oxygen. Um, all of our efforts that are greater than one minute are really powered by the mitochondria. So, it, you know, the, I mean, it's, yeah, you have other processes happening, but really the, the mitochondria are the heart and soul of those, those efforts that are greater than one minute. And basically every cycling event, save the sprints are greater than one minute in duration. So, um, um sorry, I don't want to interrupt no, you, but, uh, um, no, no, please. So the, you know, the creatine phosphate cycle then occurs outside of the mitochondria. Is that correct? It's a, yeah, it's a different process. Okay. And then um, what are the other two? Gly- glycolysis is the anaerobic? Is the, yep. And then... Um, so you have, well, so you have glycolysis, you have aerobic or anaerobic, and okay. glycolysis is just the splitting of your glucose into pyruvate, which is the half unit. Um, so it's um, oxidative phosphorylation. Is that correct? That's the aerobic one? Uh, so it's, um, well, oxidative aerobic glycolysis. Um, okay. So the phosphorylation is what happens later down the pathway when you take ADP and add phosphate to make ATP, which you need for energy to then okay. turn turn the cell. But yes, oxidative phosphorylation, sure. Uh, that's the that's like the end. That's a couple steps down, but it does happen uh, within the mitochondria. Okay. That's the that's the output. So I guess that's the other little tidbit we can throw out here is like. Yes, you need carbohydrates for energy or amino acids or um, free fatty acids, but they're just, they're a substrate that gets um, processed through what's called the Krebs cycle or the TCA cycle. Um, and that's ultimately what ends up giving off a couple other little um, molecules and then that there's an electron transport chain. See, I'm going too far down biology and you get ATPs at the end of it. That's what you should know. Okay. Car- carbohydrates go through Krebs cycle, end up giving you ATP. Uh, I think that's the, the important thing to take away uh, before we go too far down the rabbit hole of microbiology and cause me, you know, painful memories of remembering the steps of the, the Krebs cycle. Sure. Um, so, okay. So let's talk about mitochondria and sort of what their what their role is and where where they exist within our muscle tissue and so here's here's a little uh, trivia like we i know we talk sometimes about fast twitch muscle fibers and slow twitch muscle fibers and we, i'm sure we've brought this up in the past um, your fast twitch fibers tend to be more white um, in nature and your slow twitch muscle fibers tend to be more red if you look at them and that actually has to do with the mitochondrial density. Uh, so mitochondria themselves, they're actually red. Uh, so when you have a slow twitch muscle, it tends to have a much higher concentration of mitochondria. And of course those are, are more endurant fibers types or the, the slow twitch. And so high concentration of mitochondria, going to use oxygen, going to be really lean on aerobic glycolysis. And so they're going to have this red hue to them um, as opposed to the fast switch fibers, which don't really rely on the mitochondria as much for mm. their, their processes. So there you go. A little, little trivia tidbit there. And on that topic as well, you, you also mentioned that we don't have muscle fiber growth. I don't remember if you mentioned that on uh, an episode or after an episode, but um, do you mind going into like the, um, the muscle fiber types and if they can change or 
Sure. So you have type ones. Those are going to be your endurance type fibers. Um, so that's going to be your, um, like I said, this, these red, more red fibers, higher concentration mitochondria. And then you have type two, which are your fast twitch fibers. Those are going to be more white fibers, lower concentration of mitochondria. So now you can, your muscle fibers can hypertrophy, both types can hypertrophy. Um, you don't have what's called hyperplasia, which is the increase in number of muscle fibers. So like the fibers themselves can, like if your muscle itself hypertrophies or it grows, um, that's the result of the individual fibers sort of growing in their girth. Um, but not actually, there's not actually more fibers being laid down in that, um, in that muscle, if that makes sense. Yep. And, uh, and the reason that the aerobic muscles or the, uh, the slow twitch muscles have more mitochondria is because, uh, they use the mitochondria to do their aerobic slow twitch work. So, uh, the, they're very, uh, intimately interconnected. The reason for the higher mitochondrial density. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of form, form and function, right? Like these, these muscles are endurance type. They're really leaning on aerobic glycolysis to lean on aerobic glycolysis, then you need to have uh, abundant supply of mitochondria for that process. Okay. And so, okay. So there's, um, within the muscle, there's really kind of two types of mitochondria that they'll talk about. And I think this is actually super, super interesting. Uh, it's, it's a little bit kind of down the rabbit hole, but I, I think it's super interesting and at least worth, worth bringing up. And so you have, um, what are called subsarcolemmal mitochondria. And so, uh, your sarcomeres are your muscle fibers, and then you have, um, a membrane around them. And so that membrane is what ser- separates sort of the muscle fiber from the blood vessel. Okay. It's like the, it's the barrier between the two. And so these subsarcolemmal mitochondria actually sit right underneath the the membrane of the muscle okay i mean if, if you think about your muscle like a sausage casing like a sausage neck casing that's okay. it's like right underneath that casing is where these um now it's a permeable sausage casing but i think the analogy works nonetheless um so right underneath there there's these subsarcolemmal mitochondria and what's so interesting is their job in life is to let the to, you know, balance the exchange of ions and waste products in and out of the muscle cell. Like that's what they provide the power for. So like they're, they're the cleaning system and they're the gatekeeper. Um, and to you make need, sure that, um, you need like a motor force to get the toxins out. Yeah. So sometimes some things are, um, are gradients, right? And it's a high concentration on the outside and low concentration on the inside. But some things actually have um, exchangers that need power. And so these mitochondria actually provide the power to you know, exchange ions and metabolites in and out of the muscle cell. Hmm. And that's their, that's their role. So I think, that's, I think that's super interesting that you have um, a specific type, like a subtype of the mitochondria that are just responsible for making sure the the good stuff is coming in and the the used, the waste products are going out of your muscle cells. And you said specifically those sit right at the edge of the muscle cells. That's right. And right, right near. So they, they really, 
um, sort of orchestrate the exchange of products between the blood vessels and the muscle fiber. Okay. So then you have your, um, these are probably the ones like you're probably not interested in that. That's like the, the domestique mitochondria, right? They're, they're not going to win any stages. They're not going to do anything fancy, but you got to have them and they do a really important job. And so the, you know, if there are glamorous mitochondria, these are the intermyofibril mitochondria. Okay. And so a myofibril is really the contractile element of the muscle fiber. Okay. That's the, the unit that's going to be responsible for uh, contracting. And so they, these mitochondria sit within the contractile unit of the muscle and their job is, um, to, you know, maintain sufficient levels of ATP to power the muscle for contraction. So okay. like these, these are, these are the guys that bring home the bacon, right? Like these are, these are ones that are making your muscle contract because they're, they are providing the energy. And cause again, what I was sort of saying earlier is yes, we need carbohydrates. I, I mean, I think we've talked about this at length, um, on prior episodes, or we need fats as an energy source to allow for us to perform exercise, allow for us to cycle, but it's actually not the carbohydrate itself that is responsible for the muscle contraction. It's the ATP that's responsible for the muscle contraction. And that is the result of the work the mitochondria does. The mitochondria takes the fat or the carbohydrate, it breaks it down into a smaller unit, and then it trans, it translates that through the scrub cycle and a couple other steps into an ATP molecule. And then the muscle uses the ATP molecule to fuel the contraction that ultimately allows us to move. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong to summarize at a high level, the, um, the way that the energy or the, the substrate is turned into energy in the form of ATP is, um, there's, there's chemical energy between the bonds of the glucose molecules and essentially ATP, you can imagine it as a spring that the energy, when you break the glucose molecule apart, pulls the spring back into a high energy state. And then when it's time to use the ATP, you know, the spring is released and then it becomes, you know, an unwound spring. And then the next piece of glucose can, you know, wind it back up for it to be released again. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a reasonable high level analogy because what, what happens is sort of two things. So you, you break down glucose or fat or, you know, we can actually use lactate in the Krebs cycle a little bit too. And and you get pyruvate and that's what actually is the starting component of the Krebs cycle. And it's, it's going to go through and it's mediated by a, a large number of enzymes. And so you're going to go through this whole cycle and yes, there's that chemical energy that's being exchanged throughout this whole cycle. And then at the end you have uh, ADP, which is adenosine um, diphosphate. So it's adenosine molecule to phosphate molecules on it. And you want ATP, which is triphosphate. So you take the ADP and a single phosphate um, and you bond those. So you have to take some chemical energy to bond those. And that's what came from the mitochondria. That's like, that was the process was to go from ADP plus phosphate to ATP. And then the muscle then cleaves the ATP back into an ADP and a phosphate. And so that's the spring unwinding, as you said. 
and then we go and, and repeat the process and right? we recover and repeat 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 sure and um i i guess in ter- if we're going to move this analogy along to our fueling the when you just don't have any more glycogen um you have to use fat then to reset this atp spring and mm-hmm. Uh, I think the big reason why some people feel lousy when they when they run out of glucose is because um, there is only so much fat that we can mobilize and get into the cells, and so that could be rate limiting in our ability to, you know, get enough fuel into the cells, and then that's why we feel lousy is because we can't respring the ATP from ADP, and uh, you know, essentially we we just have less springs to fire. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair analogy. I think the other thing that you know we've talked about is from an intensity standpoint, you can't at a high intensity use fat as a viable substrate. At lower intensity, you can, um, but you still need some glucose there to be present. But as you go up in intensity, uh, you need to have a you use a greater percentage of glucose to provide your fuel. Yeah, and and um, well, you were going to talk about energy systems is that correct uh, a little bit yep so you know let's see I, I think i got to i got through the point about how how we get to atp and sort of what you know it's really the atp that's fueling the muscle and not necessarily the carbohydrate Car- carbohydrate is just the substrate that gets us into the Krebs cycle and we go through that we go through that cycle and get our atp at the end so one of the interesting things from an energy system standpoint is that we're doing aerobic glycolysis. So we have, we have, you know, abundant oxygen present that came in from our, our blood vessels and we can, um, go through the Krebs cycle with oxygen present. We split the glucose molecules and we go through the whole cycle. Um, at the end, we spit out between, uh, 36 and 38 ATP molecules. Okay. I mean, you know, without context, that doesn't mean a whole lot, but take it, take it for what it is. That's what science tells us. That's a pretty good deal. Um, and I want to, I want to convince you it's a really good deal because if we go into the anaerobic process and we split the same glucose molecule, it's the same, same starting substrate, but now we're splitting it without oxygen. We get two ATP molecules. Two instead of 30, you said 36 or 38? Uh, 36 to 38, depending on who, who you read. Um, so that's a, huge difference right and it i mean you can think there's a lot of things that it explains but for for one it explains why at a high intensity you can't do it for very long yeah and the energy is not available i think what's also interesting about this is um okay so we only have so much sugar that we can store on our body before a race and there's only so much we can eat during a race and to say if you go anaerobic, you're you're now you know dumping this really dirty fuel onto the fire that you're getting one what one eighteenth of the yeah, aerobic roughly. version of um, you know you're you're wasting this very valuable resource of sugar that you may need later if you do an anaerobic effort and uh, just sort of respecting that if you stay aerobic you get so much more value out of the sugar that you that you have in your body. Yeah, I think that's just, it's like the um, fuel efficiency, right? I mean, it's the same thing in your car, right? If you drive I don't know, 55 miles an hour, fuel efficiency is pretty good. If you drive 
85 miles an hour, your fuel efficiency is not good at all. Right. And, you know, a little different process happened there, but I think you can kind of take that analogy to understand that, yeah, if you can stay aerobic or, you know, the longer you can stay aerobic, you're sparing this energy and you're really using your, your glucose is carrying you much further than once you start to tip the scales and go into an anaerobic effort. Yeah. And then that's the motivation for, I believe like, um, you know, Tour de France riders, they so incredibly focus on maximizing their aerobic system because they want to do whatever it takes not to be anaerobic. Uh, because if you're riding a hundred miles a day for three weeks, like we don't have glucose to spare on these anaerobic efforts. And, uh, so this is why the pros, especially the longer distance pros are really focusing on you know, we need that aerobic system because we need that really efficient utilization of our energy substrate. Right. And I want to use that as a, as high of a pace as possible, right? Still to be using that aerobic system as opposed to kicking over into anaerobic level efforts. Yeah. And then meanwhile, uh, track riders are like, I just want more power. It's a 15 minute race. I don't care. Mm-hmm. So absolutely understanding this difference for your specific uh, interval or your effort. If you're uh, if you're one of these uh, time trialists who's doing the local twenty minute time trial, um, you know who cares? Watts are watts. Just you know get the watts up. But if you're doing an ultra marathon or um, you know you're an Ironman triathlete, uh, you're gonna want to use your aerobic system and train your aerobic system to enable to yeah enable yourself to use it at a higher wattage yeah absolutely so i think we've kind of laid down a a foundation of what the mitochondria are what their role is you know in producing energy and and getting us to go and move forward kind of the benefits of staying aerobic and so i just want to tie this together with well so what happens when we train and what are what changes um, at the mitochondria as a result of our training? And you know, what what might that inform um, in terms of what we're what we're thinking about and um, how we train and for what what we train for? And I think you sort of already uh, went down that path, right? It, it depends on what you're trying to do uh, with your with your sport on, and what you're going to train for that reason. Absolutely. So when you look at endurance training um, and you look at mitochondria, there's a couple of things that happen. And so, you know, when a lot of these studies they've done on mitochondria, they tend to be um, electron microscope studies when they image them because uh, they're, they're small. Right? We're talking about microbiology here. So you're looking at these really I don't know if you've ever seen these electron microscope images with these really grainy pictures, right? Like, oh, there's there's the mitochondria right there, and I don't know, seeing as I've never really seen one, I just trust I trust the scientists that indeed those are mitochondria that they're they're showing me pictures of. Sure, and uh, on this topic, uh, the reason they do these micro scale experiments is because there there's too much bias that could be introduced from a macro scale effort. Is that correct? Exactly, trying to really drill down into. Like what's we, happening yeah we want right to here. see what this mitochondria is doing not try and guess from you know some larger scale study exactly so um you know one of the things they see is an increase in mitochondrial mass um and so i say this very specifically because there 
early on, I think the understanding is, oh, okay, well, maybe there's more mitochondria um, that you know, develop in the cell. But from what I read, it sounds like the consensus now is more in terms of a mitochondria within a cell is this complex, really branched um, organelle, and it it really spreads out throughout the cell. So it, it's a, actually the single mitochondria, or you know, none, there's there are multiple, but they they really actually grow and have have more complex pathways in within rather than actually. Um, it's like same as what I said about the muscle cells. Like the mitochondria grow and hypertrophy as opposed to uh, multiplying necessarily. Hmm. So they, the mitochondria get larger, and so they can handle more load, and they, the mitochondria themselves become more robust. Yeah, that makes sense. But that's interesting. I, I always thought that that you got more mitochondria. So yeah, it seems, it seems like it's more more about the mitochondria more robust uh, necessarily more of them. Hmm. So what what becomes more is the enzymes that are responsible for um, moving along the, the various, and there are many steps to the Krebs cycle, um, to get you your byproducts that ultimately lead to ATP from your, uh, your pyruvate, your, your half glucose molecule. So that's another piece that changes in, you know, enzymes, right. Facilitate a chemical process along, you know, from point A to point B. Um, so if you can do that process faster by having more enzymes present, or you can do more of it, you can get more ATP and ultimately you can get more energy to contract your muscles. Hmm. So the, the once again, high level thing is sort of, uh, you know, how many, how many of your family members can you get to help you move sort of, Mm -hmm. you know? And and so the big thing with an enzyme is that it does not, between the beginning and the end of the process, the enzyme itself does not change. So it's available to do the process again. So Mm -hmm. it's essentially like how many of your family members can you recruit to unload your truck? And if you have more enzymes, you know, more family members, that truck gets emptied a lot quicker. Yep. And so you can, you can move through that process a lot quicker and go from the, you know, pyruvate molecule down and around the cycle and electron transport chain and out to you know, meaningfully ATP for movement uh, a little bit faster. Yeah. And actually I wanted to go back for a second and uh, you mentioned that, you know, the, the big thing is we don't really increase the number of mitochondria that we have, but we are increasing the number of enzymes, which increases the rate at which we can consume energy. Uh, how come, you know, people love the term uh, mitochondrial density. Um, mm-hmm. How does that fit into, um, you know, to this idea that we're not actually growing more or increasing the number of mitochondria in our cells. So I think that has to do with the mitochondria being right. This very, um, I mean, I, I, it's not one to say convoluted, but it's, you know, this is, this is big structure. And so if you look at it three dimensionally, it sort of expands out within the muscle cell. So it's taking up more space within that cell. So it is, I mean, it is truly denser, um, hmm. it's just, it's expanding, right? I mean, it's, it's like, there's, uh, you know, two ways to increase density, right? There's put more small objects in the same space or put a larger object in the same space, right? Yeah. So, so mitochondrial density is just what proportion of the cell mass is mitochondria. 
Right. It's yeah. Okay. So you're right. That's why I said like increasing mitochondrial mass. Um, it's not necessarily, I mean, right. Again, two ways you could do that. Um, and so yeah, that density mass, I think is your, hmm. you, the mitochondria has more mass in that cellular unit and it takes up more space. Cool. Interesting. So, um, and so then what are some of the benefits for one, one of these things is actually you get better at fat metabolism as you increase your mitochondrial mass or density, um, and your enzyme availability. And so this is great, right? Especially as we're talking about doing aerobic level efforts, um, we're sparing that carbohydrate to use later for our anaerobic efforts, which I think we all want. Um, so I think that's a, a worthwhile thing to note is that, you know, you want to do your, and this is where your base training comes in, honestly, is increasing your mitochondrial robustness, increasing your mitochondrial mass. Um, and uh, do, do we know um, sort of what the best way to, you know, are there training modalities specifically geared towards our mitochondria or making them more massive or more dense? So I think that's mostly the, so my understanding of it is there's sort of these two parameters we can play with, like, you know, mitochondrial mass and then enzymes. And my understanding of it is that if we do our base training, that's our mitochondrial mass that we're changing. And then if we do our high intensity training, that's um, changing our enzymatic activity. So it's increasing the enzymes within the mitochondria. Hmm. And so those things can move separately of one another. And then how does uh, weightlifting fit into this? Weightlifting really isn't going to change the mitochondria because um, it, it's right. It's an effort less than a minute. Okay. Huh. And so it may change your muscle tissue, right? And you you may have muscle hypertrophy, but it's not going to change your mitochondria because or not certainly not much because it's such a short effort, and right. So that's more going to be your uh, creatine phosphate energy system that's going to be responsible for that. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to revisit our notes on. Uh... We always had such good justification for strength training, and um, we'll have to see how all these uh, areas fit together and come up with a unified idea. Unified theory of fast bike riding? Yeah, the cyclist. Uh, well, I mean, I think one of these things is if you have more muscle mass, you can produce more force. So then you just, it's like, do you have more mitochondria to produce that force, I guess, becomes the question. Um, yeah, so it's so. it's like each of these things are sort of uh, like, you know, if you're building a, a tower, you can't just, you know, start laying stuff on top of each other. You got to plant the base correctly. And then, you know, you got to build up the the supports. And then, you know, at the end, you got to put the glass on the windows and you have to make sure everything's all in order. And um, it seems like each of these different areas applies one one part of, you know, what eventually becomes a good functioning cyclist. That's, I think it's absolutely a fair analogy, right? You have to do all these different pieces of training uh, to ultimately be, you know, successful, fit, strong, uh, whatever your metric is in terms of performance. And it, you know, you can't lean. I mean, you can, I think a lot of us do actually lean on one of these things. Um, like I'm, I'm good at this or I'm good at that. And you know, we, we lean on that a lot because, nice to be good at something um whereas i think we talk about a lot during the podcast 
well, we should probably go for a little bit of everything because ultimately that's we're going to address our weak points as well. And if we can address our weak points, I think you said some, you know, it's like, hey, if you can get everything to 80 or 85% of uh, ideal, you're going really fast um, rather than just trying to maximize one area. Yeah. And actually, as a, as a, if you're racing bikes as well, people are going to take advantage of your weak point. Uh, they'll learn it and they'll abuse it. So um, there's also that competitive motivation as well to get good at all of these different areas. So, so back to mitochondria specifically, um, increasing the mass of mitochondria is um, associated with base training. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And then incre- increasing the enzymatic um, utilization or activity is mm-hmm. related with the higher intensity work. Correct. And uh, so, I mean, that just illustrates, you know, I, I think it makes it intuitive, the ordering of our training. You know, we do the base training first and we make sure we have, you know, the mitochondrial mass then to support the adaptations that we want from the higher intensity. Yeah, right. I mean, they, this is, I think, common knowledge on the high level, right? Okay, well, I have to set up the base. I need to have a solid base to build off of when I do my my higher intensity training. But this is basically the you know cellular level justification for why you should do that. Like this is how the mitochondria respond in your muscle tissue, and therefore you should probably follow that pattern. Yeah, and I don't want to diverge too much from your own notes, but um, if you have been listening to the last couple episodes, we we've been touching on some topics about the importance of central adaptations versus peripheral adaptations. And, uh, you know, mitochondria are a peripheral feature of our body, right? They're, they're in our muscle cells. And, um, you know, if from the single leg cycling episode, we kind of showed that these peripheral adaptations aren't necessarily useful, at least for the group that was in the study. And, you know, how, how important is the mitochondria relative to the whole system, if you know, Todd, or, um, you know, how do we use this knowledge to help us become better cyclists? Fair, fair question. So I, this is where I get to share my last little note that I took here. Um, it's a nice, uh, trivia point. I think, um, maybe illustrates this point or maybe just, you know, makes us more confused. But when they did the studies, uh, one of the things that this revealed is that, you know, you're, so your mitochondrial function, your mitochondrial mass, I believe was the, the actual thing they were looking at was a, was better correlated with your endurance capacity than VO2 max. Um, and I know VO2 max is like, you know, often put on the pedestal. It's like, ah, oh, it's the thing. Uh, well, may, maybe, um, maybe not. Uh, so, and I think, but the interesting thing about mitochondria is, well, they, they're using most of the oxygen. So if they're using most of the oxygen, how is this better than VO2 max? Is, isn't VO2 max just a measure of our oxygen utilization? Um, mm-hmm. So it's like, what, what's, what's happening there? Um, and so I think that's an interesting. Did the authors take the time to speculate or did they, or were they hands off? Yeah, the, this, uh, that was, that little tidbit was in a, in a textbook. And I didn't dig up the original paper. So you can, okay. you can blame me for being a bad, a bad researcher. Like I just like stopped and was like, Oh, that's fascinating. Hmm. Um, that's worth shit. That's worth sharing. So, 
uh, maybe you know more research is needed, certainly on my part, but perhaps um, generally more research may be, be needed on that one. Uh, but I, I do think it's it's interesting, just an interesting finding, right? It's like here, look at this one marker of this you know microscopic thing, and it may be more predictive of your performance than your VO2 max. Yeah, if if nothing else, that should help convince people. You said uh, mitochondrial mass, which is uh, the base training stuff. You know, we we've already said base training super important, and you know, here's some even more evidence that your ability to be an endurance athlete is more correlated with, you know, something that's related to base training than you know the VO2 max, and uh, that's also telling with the amount of time that coaches recommend that you should be spending on base training versus VO2 max. If you listen to the VO2 max episode, you know, four to six weeks is all the high intensity you should be doing leading up to your race period. And meanwhile, base is three, four months, you know, to some extent, uh, as you move into the higher intensity stuff. So, you know, make sure you're working on this mitochondrial mass as well as other adaptations to prepare you, not just doing the high intensity, which everyone uh, it seems really common for people to, you know, come home from work, smash out an hour on the bike, uh, you know, doing some VO2 max intervals. And at the end of the day, uh, that's not necessarily going to get you the greatest improvements. Yeah, I think that's, and that's fair. You gotta, gotta build the base, gotta have the resources to be able to support that high intensity work. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, I think mitochondria are, are interesting. And I wonder if, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I should have another prompt for you to get more information out of, uh, you know, how these mitochondria can help us or, um, how we can, you know, maximize them for our needs specifically as endurance cyclists. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think we need to learn a bit more and see if, see if we can get some, uh, you know, some adaptations. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think I think it's it's fascinating. I don't want to go uh, too far down the the rabbit hole, but it sounds like you're um, you're egging me on a little bit uh, to go to go down said rabbit hole, um, and so maybe I will have to uh, dig dig down the rabbit hole, but with a you know a specific lens in terms of well, you know, how do I train to best support the mitochondria in a way that's meaningful for my cycling performance. Yeah. And honestly, if we're high level, I think the big things here are do base training. But the other big thing is, you know, make sure you have the fueling for these mitochondria. I mean, if we're increasing the mitochondrial mass, we're increasing the enzymatic activity. You need, you know, glycogen or fat at lower intensities, but you need the substrate to do it. So um, we can harken back to even other uh, episodes of, um, you know, I... Uh, we had an episode on eat more carbs. Um, you know, your mitochondria can't really work if you don't have the glucose for them. So, um, thinking about the justification for all these things that cyclists do, the, you know, the high, higher carb diets, the, um, you know, the long base training, it's all to make these adaptations at the cellular level, which are uh, correlated with good endurance performance. So keeping that in mind as you choose what you're going to train, what you're going to work on, how you become a better cyclist, that's going to be important. Yeah. And I mean, I think, look, at the end of the day, if you never think about a mitochondria again, uh, that's, 
that's fine. Um, I think it, I think it's all about perspective and looking at well, okay, why why am I doing this? And you know, if you just take it that like, hey, base is going to allow you know certain adaptations that I need in order to maximize my benefit from doing you know VO two max or other high intensity intervals. I think that's fine. I think that's a totally a fine approach. Um, if you, you know, like to geek out about it and like, well, so why am I doing this? Well, cause I'm getting this particular adaptation to my, my mitochondria. That's me. Great. Um, <laughs> all, all good. I appreciate, I appreciate it and thank you for that. Um, you know, and gave me an outlet so I could talk about mitochondria a little bit. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think the key piece, you know, for me, and I think maybe the key takeaway is there's a lot of evidence on many levels, whether you want to look at VO2 max or you want to look at mitochondria or you want to look at, you know, years and years of accumulated training knowledge that all support, um, uh, you know, a common systematic approach to your training and, you know, whatever level you want to jump in and analyze it at, uh, you're, you're going to find the same thing. And I think for, for good reason, right? Cause I think we've seen it's supported by, you know, many different parts of science, no matter where you, what angle you're coming from. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I think we can uh, could probably wrap this up at this point. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't have anything else. So, I mean, other than you know, go go re- revisit that high school textbook, maybe, and you know, thank your mitochondria for what they do. Um, no, but but seriously, uh, if you never think about a mitochondria again, no, no worries. Um, I won't. I won't be offended. Until our next episode where you dive even deeper. That's right, where I, where I recite every step of the Krebs cycle. <laughs> so um, I guess we'll say uh, thanks for listening. Um, we've had uh, quite a few listens recently, and uh, we just want to let you know, you know, thanks for taking the time to uh, let us share, you know, the things we've been looking into and our opinions on them. And uh, if you are interested in having your friends listen as well, please share with them. Or as we always say, if you don't want your friends to be good at cycling, don't share it with them. And, uh, you know, please review, uh, like, um, retweet. Um, all those things can help us get get out to more people. And um, yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks for listening. And as always, until next time, keep the upper side down. <laughs>